No, I did not forget the Lord's table. We're going to do it at the end. Because I think the conclusion of our message today would be an appropriate time to celebrate the Lord's table in light of the hope that Peter brings us in the midst of all the gloom and doom of chapter 2. Would you say that chapter 2 is kind of gloomy? Yeah, it's not a very bright and happy. It's kind of doom and gloom. Because to consider the, the fate, the plight of the ungodly is not a pleasant task. But nonetheless, it is important to consider. So um, let me encourage you that as we look at chapter 2, don't keep your eyes fixed on the doom and gloom of chapter 2. We have a bright future filled with God. Let's pray before we look into God's word this morning. Father in heaven, thank you once again for the opportunity to consider what you have to say through your servant Peter about those that contradict and want to um, turn our hearts and our minds away from the truth. Help us, Lord, as we look at it this morning, that we will consider the beauty of what you have presented as the truth and how those who don't love the truth, don't want to hear the truth, don't want to be changed by the truth, don't want to consider the truth, how they have chosen a path that will take them to destruction. Lord, thank you for the songs and the hymns that we've sung. Prepare our hearts for what your word has to tell us. I pray, Lord, that our hearts might be open to what your word has to teach us, and that, Lord, we would benefit greatly from looking at this uh, particular passage of Scripture. We ask for your guidance and for your help. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The but of chapter 2, verse 1, is in direct contrast to the more sure word of prophecy and the phrase, no prophecy came by the will of man, in chapter 1 and verse 21. Just as Old Testament prophets were contradicted by the fake prophecies of the false prophets of the Old Testament, so the special revelation of the New Testament times would be contradicted and compromised by false teachers. Nothing has changed. Just think about it. This is just a few years. Peter is writing these words. Just a few years removed from the departure of Christ at the ascension. The church is not even 100 years old. The church isn't even 50 years old. It's barely 20 years old. And there were false teachers already on the loose. Do you think that things have gotten any better 2,000 years removed from the crucifixion? No. They're still the same. There are still false prophets. 
and there's still a warning to be heeded. That's why we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, from David Helm's commentary on 2 Peter, in October of 1855, at a time when society's views on the nature of biblical authority and human freedom were evolving and setting the stage for our modern times, Vincent van Gogh, the wildly talented yet tortured Dutch artist, completed an oil on canvas and titled it Still Life with Bible. Looking at it, one observes a table, and upon that table, an open Bible. To the right of God's Word is a candle, burned out, standing in its holder. In the foreground, the artist has painted a small yellow book. The print on the binding is still legible. You might not be able to see it in the picture, but it's there. I checked it. it is Amy, it's a copy of Emil Zola's book, The Joy of Life. And you may say, Emile Zola, who's that dude? He was a French literary author. And he wrote a book called The Joy of Life, which you see there portrayed in front of the scriptures. Look at the picture. By placing a burned-out candle beside the Bible, and by putting both in the, fore, in the background, rather, Van Gogh is telling us that the time for walking through this world by the illumination of the Holy Spirit who shines down upon God's Word is past. It's done. Don't need it anymore. Biblical authority is no longer holds sway. People are guided now by a different, if not lesser, light. That is what he is saying. Even the flaming color of yellow for the little book is now reserved for the cover of another book. Humanity's new pursuit is governed by whatever brings us the joy of life. May I remind you that every single Hallmark movie has a phrase in it that grates on my nerves every time I watch a Hallmark movie. You know what that phrase is? I only want you to be happy. Every single Hallmark movie. That is the mindset of our world. Everything is, oh, to be done so that we can find joy and happiness. Helm goes on to comment. Interestingly, that which Van Gogh painted in oils in 1855, Peter had already pictured and commented on centuries ago. Like us, the aging apostle lived in a day when the light of God's word seemed to be in danger of being snuffed out and extinguished altogether. People were following another path, carried along by a candle of a different sort. Nothing has changed. The danger still is present for the modern-day church. There are other voices that want to take over from what God's voice has already pronounced. So, how should we view this portion of Peter's letter to his audience in exile? Peter makes a prediction that has stood the test of, I, the test of time. Then he brings to bear three Old Testament illustrations from Genesis that prove his point. 
followed by three examples of how God has always had a remnant that will stand true regardless of the circumstances. And that's Peter's point this morning. Not that the uh, false teachers should take first place and preeminence, but that rather in light of those truths, in light of the circumstances, we should remember what God has already promised. And so let's begin by looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where we have Peter's prediction. Peter predicts that there will be false prophets, that there will be false teachers who will arise. Just as that happened in the Old Testament, so it will be with the New. What are the consequences of those who would follow those false teachers? Well, he says that many will follow. Many will follow. Thank goodness not all will follow. There will be many. And it seems that it has been the case of the church through the centuries that the majority of society, the majority of culture, has followed these false teachings. Notice what they follow, though. Not their false teaching, but their sensuality. That's interesting. Chris brought out in the passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy this morning that that seems to be the main characteristic of those that would want to uh, bring false teaching into the church. It's always somehow connected to sensuality. Now, sensuality, we would think, would refer maybe solely to has a sexual overtone. But it's not just that. Sensuality has to do with appeal to the flesh. What are some of the things that we are that appeal to the flesh? Well, uh, prosperity. Ooh, I can make more money. Make it faster. Maybe not. Maybe I can cut some corners. And not have to be patient and wait. If it seems to be too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. I don't know how many of you have been taken in by scams. People that promise X, but they deliver zero. <laughs> Happens all the time. You know, Barnum and Bailey. You know, there's a sucker born every day. <laughs> that is what false teachers bank on. They bank on, ooh, I can offer them something that seems really, really, really good. It looks like the real thing, but it's fake. We've heard a lot about fake things lately, fake news, etc. One of the things that really is difficult for those who seek to preach the truth and be faithful to the truth like Trinity Baptist, is that by preaching the truth and by staying faithful to the truth and by not compromising and going a different direction, that sometimes it looks like we're the odd man out. How come 
X, Y, or Z church is growing. And look at us. Well, the issue isn't numbers. The issue is faithfulness. And God in his word never promised that we would be the most numerous. Oh, one day, we thousands of us, millions of us, will gather in the throne room of God in heaven. And we'll enjoy all of us being together. The saints from all the ages. I, I still am excited to see who's going to be there. Because I've had encounters with hundreds and thousands of people over my lifetime where the gospel has gone forward. The truth has been preached. The truth has been taught. A few have believed. But at the same time, I have also heard in years past, those that heard the truth were transformed by it, and they said, do you remember when you preached a message on X, Y, Z? And I'm like, no, I do not. <laughs> well, because of what you said, and because of the words of the passage that you preached, my life was transformed. Folks, be faithful at proclaiming the truth and let God worry about who responds. Be faithful. I think that's what Peter's trying to communicate here. Notice that in all this whole process, the way of truth will be blasphemed. These uh, false teachers don't care if they violate Scripture. They don't care if they tell you something is what it isn't. They don't care if they twist and bend and, 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 and distort truth. They will go on whatever will fulfill their greed using false words. The false prophet's motivation is to get more followers. And he'll do it by any means possible. But notice what it says in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. In other words, God hasn't forgotten. It may seem that they are prospering. It seems that they are gaining a following. It seems like they're doing much better than we are, those who hold to the truth and preach the truth and speak the truth and live by the truth. We seem to be fewer in number than they. But listen to what Peter says. Their final end is not idle. It is active. Their final end is their judgment is wide awake. They have not been left aside. The Lord watches. The Lord knows. And he will bring them to account. Look at that, what it says. And their destruction is not asleep. As if destruction was something that could take a nap. He says it hasn't. Their destruction still awaits them, and they will get their just desserts in the end. That's Peter's prediction. Doesn't sound very positive, does it? It does remind us of what Stu read to us in Psalm 1 this morning. And it also reminds me of David and many of his psalms 
when he complains to the Lord, how come the wicked prosper? How come they get away with it? We have multiple examples of those things going on right before our very eyes being, being fleshed out in the news on a daily basis. I don't know if you've kept up with the news lately. I will not mention names, but you know what? We have it happening on a daily basis. All you have to do is read the news feeds. There are people who the authorities know they have broken the law, but yet they still somehow seem to get away with it and with impunity, with nothing being done to bring them to justice. What they don't realize, what these evildoers have done, they don't realize that someday they will be brought to justice. Maybe not under the American system, but under God's system, they will be brought to justice. So Peter, I wouldn't doubt, had the same kinds of examples he could give in his day of people who had been notoriously unfair, cheated people, got away with murder, literally, and never paid a price for it. But yet, he says, their destruction is not asleep. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. But my life is still tough. Yeah. So what then is God's provision in all this? Well, his provision is, remember how I have treated those who have come before. And he uses a really neat little literary device. You ever, you ever heard of an if-then clause? If you do this, then I'm going to do that. If you do this, this will happen then. That will happen. We have those things happen today. I mean, parents use that as threats with their children. If you don't obey me, then you're going to get a whatever. We do it all the time. That's kind of the premise of the law. You ever thought about it? The law is written in an if-then fashion. Well, if you disobey this, I mean, you drive down the road and there's a posted sign for a speed limit. And then there's a, 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 a member of the law enforcement community that's sitting just a few hundred feet away and you go blowing past 35 mile an hour zone at 45. If the police officer is awake, he's had his cup of coffee and he's not too far engaged in that donut, he might pull out after you, flag you down, give you a ticket. That is based on an if-then clause. If you pass the speed limit, then you will pay the consequences. You pay money. What are the three examples God gives? Let's look at them. They're found in verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, he gives the example of if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Hmm. Anybody know where that's from in the Bible? I already put it up on the PowerPoint for you. It's in Genesis chapter 6. Do you remember that passage about the sons of God came down to earth and saw that the 
daughters of men were beautiful. And then it goes on to say that they cohabitated with them and that the result of their union was they created giants in the land. If you trace that through the scriptures, it's quite interesting. You would think the flood would have wiped them all out because that's the next example. But somehow, there was a remnant of them that remained. Perhaps through the bloodline of Noah, we don't know. But somehow, there was a remnant. Because even when David, or not David, but when Joshua went to conquer the land, they encountered the Nephilim, the giants that plagued the land of Canaan, all the way through until the reign of Saul and David, because you have Goliath of Gath, and then later on his brother, who was another giant. Seems like every time that there was a rearing of its ugly head of those who were against God, against his people, wanting to do harm to the, the, those who were uh, God's special people, the Jews, guess what happened? They would have to conquer these giants somewhere along the line. What does this mean? Well, notice how they are described in verse 4. It says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, that these angels, these messengers of God who had disobeyed God, and remember, when Satan was cast out of heaven, a tenth of them were cast to the earth. Or rather, I'm sorry, not a tenth, but a third of them were cast to the earth. And that there was a large number of them who had rebelled against God. And they were out to do Satan's bidding. And their purpose was to go against everything and anything that God had said. They are an example of those evil ones who are false prophets who want to always contradict what God says and try to drag others into their error. Notice what their end is. They cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. The language of 2 Peter chapter 2 reflects the language of Jude 6. Have you ever looked at that? If you take a moment and look to Jude and look at verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he, meaning God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. seems that Jude and Peter were quoting the same lines. The same truths were being taught. These angels stepped out of their realm where they didn't belong to do things with humans that was not intended by God initially and at the beginning. And that they created another race that would be against God. 
cast them into hell. So they are going to these angels that stepped out of their realm, stepped out of their position of authority, left their proper dwelling, are going to be committed to judgment, eternal judgment. Notice in chapter, chapter 2, verse 10, which is the end of the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. And notice how it is, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Notice that these false teachers, they have this desire to despise authority and that they are always somehow connected with sensuality, lust, and passion. There's always this underlying uh, uh, thought that they have in their mind that they want to satisfy their own passions. This is serious. This is the mindset of those who are ungodly and do not want to follow the word of God. The second example that Peter gives is found in verse 5. He says, If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, that, that situation is taken from the passage that follows it immediately after the, 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 this passage in Genesis chapter 6 where it talks about these angels, uh, these sons of God who cohabitated with the daughters of men. What is God's immediate response to that wickedness? Destruction. Because now we have the story of God sparing the ancient world. He didn't spare it. He didn't spare it from the flood. He allowed it to take place when he brought a flood upon the world of whom? The ungodly. And they were some of the offspring of this, these angels and women who had cohabitated and created a race that was their desire, their passion, was to go against the word of God. Noah had to deal with these people as he built the ark as he prepared to save his family alive. Then verse 6 follows. This is the third if clause. You see how Peter is building his case? If God didn't spare the angels who stepped out of their realm of authority, if God didn't spare the ancient world from destruction that he had created by his miraculous word, if God then by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he goes further on in the Genesis account to all the way to chapter 19, and he commits this, these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, to ashes, notice that it says he condemned them to extinction. In other words, never to be spoken of again. And archaeologists have tried in vain to find Sodom and Gomorrah in the archaeological record as they've dug around the Dead Sea, which is the location where Sodom and Gomorrah would have been. They have not found one evidence of them having existed. They were wiped out of existence by God. Notice why God wipes them out. Look at verse 6. Why did God wipe these wicked cities out? 
He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So God has already judged ungodly angels. He's already judged the ancient world through the flood. And then he's also turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes for the purpose of making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If the passage of Scripture that we are considering this morning had ended at verse 6, it would have been a sad story. But listen to what Peter says. Because he has even a glimmer of hope. And you might say, Pastor Tim, you don't know how to do an outline. Well, I did my outline based on the judgment. And then I wanted to show you in contrast that look at verse 5, the second half of verse 5. I deliberately overlooked it. Look at verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, that's the contrast. He preserved Noah because there was a righteous element alive at the time of the judgment. And God chose to preserve that element. And notice what he says. A herald of righteousness. You notice the contrast in this passage. Ungodly, ungodly ungodly, and then all of a sudden, righteous. Noah is mentioned as a herald of unrighteous, of, of, excuse me, as a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, so the contrast to the flood is Noah. The contrast to Sodom and Gomorrah is Lot. And you might say, hmm, when I read the story of Lot, it doesn't seem like Lot was really, really, really very righteous. Well, you're wrong. God's word said he was. So we must believe what God says. Sodom and Gomorrah was so bad, so wicked, so awful, so ungodly. It says, he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. That's the second time we've seen the word sensual. Always appealing to the senses, whether it's power, money, lust, the satisfaction of one's flesh, whatever. And then there's the parenthesis of verse 8. Verse 8 is really kind of the crux. For as that righteous... Okay, this is the second time the passage is called Lot righteous. So I think we better listen to what God's word says about Lot. He was a righteous guy. Listen, it says, Righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So three times in this passage, in just the space of two verses, we have Lot called righteous. Three times. So do you think Lot was a righteous guy? Some of you aren't convinced. So was Lot a righteous guy? Yeah, he was. Because God calls him righteous. 
Remember, Peter wrote words as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these, this is God's commentary on Lot. It doesn't come across that way as we look at the Old Testament, Genesis 19, uh, account of Lot. Well, we have to wait till the New Testament to find out the guy really was trying to live for God in that wicked, wicked society, culture, setting. But notice, what's the point of this? There are these ungodly, a mass of ungodly people, a whole world that gets destroyed by water during the global flood, and God saves eight people based on one righteous dude named Noah. There's two cities that are just the epitome of wickedness and debauchery and sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness, and God saves one guy and his family out of that wicked lot of people. No pun intended. God saves them. What is, what is Peter trying to say? You and I might live in an unrighteous culture. You and I might live in an unrighteous area surrounded by ungodliness, surrounded by people who don't love Jesus, hate you, and would rather see you dead if we were to speak it truthfully, right? And what does God say in his word? That God is able to rescue righteous Lot. But then to bolster his argument even more, he's given these four if clauses, these four examples. And what does he say at the end? Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I love that passage. The world is bad. It is not a pleasant experience to be outnumbered by people who are ungodly and don't like me because I follow the truth. And they don't like my brothers and sisters who are followers of the truth along with me. But it says that if God could rescue a lot, if God can rescue a Noah, if God can judge the unrighteous, the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. But not only rescue the godly, but to hold the ungodly, the unrighteousness, hold their feet to the fire until the day of judgment. Now, my question is, if that is the case, has God forgotten about us? 
really, has God forgotten about you? Has God forgotten about me? Are we kind of left to wing it on our own? Figure out how to get through this? No. You're not left alone. God has not left us alone. He has already cared for what is going to happen. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he knows how to keep the unrighteousness, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And notice that if that isn't enough, Peter goes one step further. Look what he says. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. God has set aside punishment for those, especially those who have this bent toward sensuality and those who want to do wrong and they despise authority. They snub their nose at God's word. They snub their nose at supernatural truth that has been given in the word of God. Peter says, God knows how to keep those ones especially. In other words, God is aware of every single individual minute infraction of his holy law. He doesn't let it go. It may seem like they're getting off scot-free. Don't worry. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And that's why in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 21, he says, do good to your enemies. How do you overcome evil? Well, overcome evil with good. But, but they're dirty, and they're rotten, and they're cheats. They're liars. They're getting away with everything. And I don't hardly do anything wrong, and I get thrown in jail. I have to pay a fine. And Paul says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let the Lord repay them. You worry about obeying the truth. Peter got, attacks the same thing. says, it's better to uh, you know, suffer for doing right than to do something wrong and pay the price for it. That's 1 Peter. So how should you and I respond? Well, where does our hope lie? Well, our hope lies in the character of God and the promises of God, which are propositional statements of absolute truth. He is faithful because of the great and precious promises that he left us with. Remember 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4? One of those reminders is found in a visible reminder that God has provided us with when we celebrate the Lord's table. What is the phrase that we repeat when we celebrate the Lord's table? Do this in remembrance of me. What was Peter's reason for writing this epistle? It was to remind his readers of those great and precious promises 
not to forget the circumstances that you are in and just look at them only, but remember what the promises that I've made to you. Remember that God will keep you even in the midst of these difficult circumstances. Have you ever reflected on why the Lord left us with this recurring celebration? The Lord's table. Have you ever thought about that? Why did the Lord leave us that? Well, there are two visible reminders given by the Lord Jesus before he left. One was baptism. And that is a reminder of the gospel. Buried with him in his death, raised to new life when you come out of the water. The second one is this table that we will celebrate here in just a few moments. It's a visible reminder of the gospel. This reminder is composed of two elements. We have the juice that we enjoy. It reminds us of the shed blood of Christ. We have the bread that reminds us of his body. Why do you suppose the Lord gave us these two elements at the Lord's table? So they wouldn't forget. Oh, isn't that a problem I have? Forgetting. Ah, yes, I forgot. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. It's a reminder of the gospel. So this table that we celebrate, that we're going to celebrate here, is a table of remembrance. What we've been rehearsing this morning is the reason why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because we have wicked people around us who would like us to think that we are defeated. Because we are a minority, we are defeated. Whereas the scriptures tell us, it doesn't matter if you're in the minority or the majority, if you are on God's side, you're on the winning side. I don't know if you've read the last chapter of the Bible. You ready? Spoiler alert, we win. We win. And so we need to be reminded, you may be a minority. You may be small. You may seem weak. There are not many of you. But the promise we have is that, lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. God is with us. You remember when Moses was going to take the children of Israel into the promised land? And Moses says to the Lord, he says, I'll go on one condition, if you go with me. God has sent us, the church, into the world to be witnesses with one promise. I will go with you. If that does not give you hope and confidence and joy 
the Lord can and will rescue us from the danger of false teachers who will lead us away from the truth. Take heart and see that the Lord's table this morning is a table of remembrance, lest you forget. Let this celebration of the Lord's table be a vivid visual reminder of his faithful promises to keep us from those who would seek our destruction. And so, I invite you to join us. You don't have to be a member of Trinity Baptist to do so. However, we do ask that if you have not placed your faith and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins, that you refrain from taking the bread and the cup this morning. But... If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and claim him as your only hope in life and death to take part with us in the celebrating the Lord's death till he comes, we invite you to join us as we take of the bread and the cup. So I'd like to invite our deacons to come forward and we'll distribute the elements. And then we'll pray, sing, and fellowship together.